Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Chris Stringer. He's a research leader in human evolution, uh, part of the Natural History Museum. And we're going to talk about uh, you know various topics in human evolution. So, Chris, thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what's your current work like? Tell me about it. Well, obviously, uh, it's been an unusual year with uh, the COVID lockdown, so I've uh, hardly been in my normal place of work, the Natural History Museum. I've mostly been working from home, but it has meant that I can get to write up a lot of stuff that's been lying around for a while. So actually, in terms of writing, quite productive. And um, just uh, this year, since January, we've um, we've published three papers. So I published a review paper with uh, three geneticists and an archaeologist about the origin of modern humans. I published a paper on some teeth from Jersey, which are probably about 45,000 years old and which show an interesting combination of Neanderthal and modern human features, possibly signs of hybridization between them. And uh, just this week, a a paper has come out uh, looking at the issue of southern Denisovans. So these mystery people which seem to have been living in Southeast Asia and interbred with the ancestors of modern native populations in uh, Papua New Guinea and Australia but we don't have clear fossil evidence of them. So I was on a paper discussing where the fossils might be of these people and uh, more evidence of the interbreeding with them. Do we, are there no fossil, fossils of Denisovans at all or just not that are in intermediate interbred form? 
with uh, Neanderthals or Homo sapiens. Well, yes. Yeah, so the, the known fossils of Denisovans, uh, the first ones, very fragmentary, were found in Denisova Cave in Siberia. And there we've got a finger bone and a few teeth and a, a bit of a skull. And then there's a jawbone from the Tibetan plateau of China, which also seems to be a Denisovan. And that's the, the real hard evidence of them. But of course, we've got a lot of DNA data from the fossils and also from the cave sediments. Uh, that these uh, caves that these people were occupying. But the weird thing is that the biggest amount of their DNA today is not found in Siberia or China. It's found in places like Australia and New Guinea. So this is a puzzle. And the huh. guess is that they must have had uh, a population, a related population living down in Southeast Asia, perhaps even on the islands, places like Sulawesi and uh, Borneo and so on. And we don't have those fossils. So, you know, or some people suspect we might have the fossils already, but we're misidentifying them because we know there were ancient people in the region. So the ancient species Homo erectus was living on Java until about 100,000 years ago, maybe later. And then there's this these weird dwarf species that we've learned about in the last few years from Flores, Homo floresiensis, nicknamed the Hobbit, and on Luzon in the Philippines, more fragmentary material of, of something called Homo luzonensis. And these seem to be dwarf species that are quite primitive. So in my view, none of those, they're all too primitive and too different from, from us and Neanderthals to represent Denisovans, because what we do know about Denisovans is that they're, they're closely related to us and the Neanderthals. Those things that we know about in Southeast Asia, the ones I've mentioned, they're much more primitive. They're much more distinct. So I don't think they're Denisovans. Some people think maybe we've got it wrong and the Denisovans are one of those populations, but I, I doubt it. Well, how many major uh, humanoid populations are there and what differentiates them? Well, yes, it depends what time period we're talking about. But even within the last 100,000 years, there were at least five kinds of humans on Earth. I think probably six. So we had been evolving in Africa, Homo sapiens. In uh, Europe and Asia, we had the Neanderthal lineage evolving. Over in the Far East, there's the Denisovans, as I mentioned. And then down in Southeast Asia, potentially Homo erectus surviving, Homo floresiensis, the so-called hobbit, and Homo luzonensis. So that's at least five or six populations. And, and the weird thing, and one of the one of the issues that I'm addressing, and all of us are trying to address in this time period, is what happened to those other species? Why were the only humans left now on the planet Earth when there was all this diversity not too long ago? What was the uh, the last species apart from us? Was it Neanderthals that, that faded out? Well, we don't know the answer to that for sure. So we think the Neanderthals lasted until about 40,000 years ago. It looks like Floresiensis was still on Flores 50,000 years ago, but we don't know how much longer. Homo luzonensis, the known fossils are maybe 60 or 70,000 years old. We don't know how long that lasted. And the Denisovans, well, they seem to have been around at least 45,000 years ago. Again, we don't know when they disappeared. So so probably these, some of these peoples lasted at least until 40,000 years ago. Some people suspect the Denisovans lasted even longer in Ireland, Southeast Asia, but we don't know that at the moment. So does it seem like 40 to 50,000 years ago, there was a sudden drop off in all of these other types of humans except Homo sapiens? Well, that's right. And so obviously this implicates maybe Homo sapiens in the disappearance of these other species, because we think that modern humans made their main exit from Africa 
about 60,000 years ago. And then they began to spread inevitably into the territory of these other humans. And so there was a coexistence period, at least for some of them, certainly for us and Neanderthals and us and Denisovans, because there was interbreeding. So we must have coexisted with them. And they disappeared after that. So, you know, did we did we kill them off in some way, either purposefully or, or sort of because we hunted the same animals and collected food and wanted to live in the best resources, best areas, did we did we compete with them economically? And thus they sort of died out because of competition from modern humans. There's even a view that for the Neanderthals, we kind of absorbed them out of existence, that we interbred with them, we kind of mopped them up, and hence they disappeared by being integrated into a, a much bigger modern human population. So in that sense... Yeah. These Neanderthals and Denisovans haven't gone extinct wholesale. Physically, they've disappeared, but of course, their DNA lives on in, in modern people today. Yeah, and people today, some have Neanderthal DNA, but do any of them have Denisovan or any of these other types of humanoid DNAs in them? Well, yes. Yeah, so the paper we published earlier this week, we were looking at the question of Denisovan DNA over in uh, Ireland, Southeast Asia, places like New Guinea and Sulawesi and, uh, and and so on. And we were able to confirm what other people had found, which that Denisovan DNA is is widespread in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's present in low levels in much of Eastern Asia and over in the Americas in Native Americans, but it's there at a much higher level, maybe three or 4% in people in places like Papua New Guinea and, and Native Australians. And that's on top of having Neanderthal DNA. So the scenario looks most likely that when modern humans made this, this first exit from Africa about 60,000 years ago, obviously they first of all went into Southwest Asia and then the populations that eventually ended up in Australia and New Guinea, their ancestors headed across Southern Asia and then down through Southeast Asia. So in Southwest Asia, they first of all picked up Neanderthal DNA, which is widespread everywhere outside of Africa. We have it, Europeans have it at about 2%. And then these populations that headed to New Guinea and Australia, they then had a second phase of interbreeding with the Denisovans, and that got added into their genomes. So they have two lots of interbreeding, first with Neanderthal ancestors and then with Denisovan ancestors. And we also investigated whether there might be signs of interbreeding with these other more archaic lines, the Homo erectus, Homo floresiensis, Homo lusinensis. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But my geneticist colleagues could find no evidence of more ancient signs of interbreeding of a more ancient population. So it's only Neanderthals and Denisovans that have got the interbreeding in that region. In Africa, there's also potentially some interbreeding there with uh, an unknown archaic species 
possibly an earlier species called Homo heidelbergensis, had survived in Africa and was interbreeding with modern humans in sub-Saharan Africa as well. So basically, this interbreeding with our close relatives is something that seems to have happened widely within modern humans. So we're not 100% recent African origin, which is what I would have told you, say, 15 or 20 years ago, more or less 100% recent African origin. We've got a bit of the genomes of these other earlier species added into our genomes. Is there is there evidence, I guess there is, of people crossing some of the oceans 50,000 years ago to reach certain areas they otherwise couldn't? That's right. So, yes, yeah, so thinking of Ireland, Southeast Asia, so today, of course, uh, places like uh, Borneo and, and so on and Java are, are separate islands, but at times of low sea level, so when the ice caps were large, as they often were during the ice ages of the last couple of million years, the sea level dropped and sometimes it dropped over 100 metres because of all the water that was locked up in these enlarged ice caps. And so the sea level fell. And at times like that, Java was connected to the rest of Southeast Asia and human populations could have walked across. Now, that was never true for New Guinea and Australia. Those, those areas were always cut off from Southeast Asia. So there are a chain of islands leading to uh, New Guinea and Australia, but those were never connected by land bridges within the last million years or so. So for modern humans to end up in Australia and New Guinea, they must have had watercraft to get there. They must have had intentional sea crossings, some kind of boats, even though we've got no actual archaeological evidence of the having boats. The fact they got to Australia means they must have had them and they must have had them 45 or 50,000 years ago to make those journeys. Yeah, that's amazing that they would have uh, been on the ocean that long ago. It's really crazy. <laughs> it is. It is amazing. And um, even further back, of course, there's the, the situation of Homo floresiensis. So this uh, much more primitive creature with a basically an ape-sized brain, that somehow ended up on Flores, which is also an isolated island uh, way beyond Java. And we simply don't know how that creature got there because it looks like there were primitive humans on Flores a million years ago, potentially the ancestors of uh, Homo floresiensis. So I find it difficult to think they, they had boats that far back in time. It is possible, but also possible is that you get accidental rafting. You get tsunamis in the region and you think of that tsunami maybe 10 years ago, that massive tsunami from volcanic events these happen quite frequently in the area because it's tectonically very active and animals can be picked up and spread on rafts of vegetation so after that tsunami about 10 years ago people were found out at sea more than 100 miles from where they started a week later on rafts of vegetation so that's in the last 10 years when you're talking about time scales of hundreds of thousands of years these very rare and special events actually can happen and you can have populations moving and that's how some species have crossed over to those islands and i think that homo floresiensis may well have ended up being rafted on vegetation by a tsunami and somehow ended up on flores if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes so can we determine the phenotype what these different humanoids would look like because i've seen you know renderings of neanderthals i don't know how accurate they are but they appear to be you know very close to us, a broader nose, different jaw, chest and everything. So Yeah, so obviously we, you know, we've got well-preserved Neanderthal fossils, so we know 
pretty well how they would have looked at least an overall appearance in terms of their body shape and their muscle and so on. They were very broad, very muscular, great big rib cage. They had huge lungs in there. They had a face which was different from ours. It had a big nose that was pulled forwards, not much of a chin, a brow ridge over the eyes. And that's very common with these more ancient species to have a big brow ridge, a receding forehead, but a big brain, but in a brain case that's longer and lower, a different shape to our own. So physically, they would have looked different. And of course, what we can't tell is the details of their their covering. We, we think that their skin color might have been, you know, not white, but it would have been a relatively pale skin, probably in Europe. But we don't know much about their hair color. I think most data suggests actually their hair color was probably dark. But how much body hair they had, things like that, we haven't got any idea. And so a reconstruction, of course, can show them as being very hairy and they won't look very human or it can make them look much more like us and and you'll see a range of reconstructions if you look in the literature and if you go to museums you will see some reconstructions that make the neanderthals look very human uh, in some cases they almost look kind of heroic to me they're sort of uh, you know very noble 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 populations and in others you'll see them a bit dirtier and a bit scruffier so you know there is this element of unknown about what they really look like but they would have been human they walked upright uh, you know as well as we do uh, they were technically very capable but they were more heavily muscled um, they were you know a, a different human they'd been on a different evolutionary path for several hundred thousand years so they they weren't just in my view another version of homo sapiens they were more distinct for the denisovans because we've got such fragmentary fossils we don't know what they look like we we know that they were related to us and the neanderthals so they probably had pretty certainly had big brains uh, they had big molar teeth we know that from the surviving fossils but otherwise we know very little about them and so this is one of the intriguing things that you know we can look forward in the next few years hopefully to the recovery of much more complete denisovan fossils to tell tell us how they uh, how they related to us and the neanderthals in in physical appearance is there like a, you know, a rarity scale of fossils available at that time period? Can you tell, was there any, I know, was there any big climatic, you know, climate change events or climate events or, I mean, what was going on at that time period? And what do you think there's the yeah. number of fossils that there are? Yeah, sure. So obviously the fossils uh, we have, you know, preservation varies greatly from one place to another. And there are some environments which we know preserve fossils very well. So cave sites are very good. So they act like traps, you know, things fall into the caves and get preserved. And also we know that uh, an area like East Africa is excellent because you've got a rifting going on there. The East African continent is opening up and you get these sedimentary basins of rivers and lakes. And they also are very good for preserving fossils. So those are good places to look for fossils. But there are many other areas. So, for example, deserts, of course, you get a lot of erosion, very dry conditions. They usually will not preserve fossils well. Rainforest environments may also be bad for fossils. So there are certain places where fossils will stand a better chance of, first of all, being deposited. And then you've got to hope that the local conditions are good for their preservation. So there is a variation. European caves have been very good to yield up fossils. Some river sites have been very good for, for yielding up fossils, but open country areas, much more difficult to find fossils in those areas. And of course, temperature conditions are also critical too. So if you've got a place like Denisova Cave, there you've got remarkable preservation because that area was very cold and therefore you've not only got good bone preservation, but the DNA is also wonderfully preserved. 
and that unfortunately is not going to apply in tropical and subtropical areas where the conditions are, are very bad for DNA preservation. So you do get this differences across across the world. And of course, it's also a measure of where people have looked for fossils. So people have, of course, concentrated in Africa on the Rift Valley sites in places like Kenya and Ethiopia. And they've looked at the cave sites in South Africa and to a certain extent caves in places like Morocco. But maybe 90% of the African continent has still not yielded up a single fossil for the time period we're talking about. So there's a huge amount that's still unknown. And then when you look to a huge area like Asia, and when you look at all those islands in Southeast Asia, really very few fossils from a big area there too. So, so we really only have still, I think, a, a very incomplete picture of the diversity of these early humans. And there will be many more exciting discoveries to come as people open up some of these areas that are so far unexplored more or less for their fossils. What about the uh, the hobbit creature that you mentioned? What's, uh, why is it called that and what does it look like? Well, yeah, so uh, when it was uh, published in 2004, of course, uh, you know, there'd been the, the Hobbit films and the Hobbit books, of course, were very popular. So it was very small bodied. So this individual, the most complete skeleton uh, is of a female individual uh, and she's only just over a meter tall. So um, she uh, got the nickname Hobbit and that name has stuck. And we have other fossils from the site and all of them are small bodied. So we're talking about a, a very small bodied creature uh, with a small head, uh, quite a small brain, as I say, an ape sized brain, really not a human sized brain, small teeth, but quite a robust jaw and some weird body proportions. So very short legs and very long arms, uh, great big feet. So strange looking, a strange looking creature, very human looking, probably if we could have seen it. Homo luzonensis, that also was small bodied from the surviving parts and has got small teeth, but it also seems to have curved hand and foot bones, suggesting that it may have retained an ability to climb in the trees. So uh, again, that may not have been particularly human-like uh, if we could have seen it. Yeah, wow. Are any of these uh, humanoid variations closer to an ape ancestor than we are? Is it? Can you tell? It doesn't look like it. So it looks like all of these are variants that have evolved within the last, let's say, two million years. So the estimates of when we split from closest living relatives because of the chimpanzees. So we seem to have split from their lineage maybe seven million years ago. So we and Floresiensis and all these other ones I've talked about are evolutionary products of the last two million years or so. So, you know, we're all relatively closely related. And a lot of those original eight features of the common ancestor have been lost in that time. So all of the things I've talked about walked upright uh, in, in some fashion, maybe a little bit differently. Floresiensis has some primitive features in its hip bones, for example, may not have walked entirely as we do. And certainly Floresiensis and Luzonensis may have spent time in the trees uh, from some features in their anatomy. Um, but they were not ape-like in the sense of being similar to that common ancestor uh, many millions of years ago. So they were human in that sense. Um, I mean, we classified them in the genus Homo. So for me, that, that means I, I call them human. Some people differ in that. They, they, some people think that it's only our own species that we should call human. I take a view that anything in the genus Homo, and that includes us and uh, Neanderthals, Denisovans, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, floresiensis, luzonensis, they're all within the genus Homo, so, so I would call them all human. Some people think that there are enough primitive features in, in floresiensis and luzonensis to hint 
that they might be part of a, a very early out of Africa dispersal and that they did not come from Homo erectus ancestors as the rest of us did, but they might actually come from a slightly earlier branch of the human line. So I don't know about that. I think it's still an open question. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, we're not likely to have DNA from those fossils because of the, uh, the warm conditions in the, uh, the cave sites. But work is progressing on proteins from fossil bones. And it's possible that if we can get proteins, which often survive better from those fossils, they also will help us relate these fossils to us, to the Neanderthals and to each other. And that's work which is ongoing at the moment. What would you expect, you know, how would you expect to recount human evolution if, you, if we had, you know, more data? And what does more data mean? Yeah, I, I think it will show a lot more diversity. I think that species we know about within the last million years are only a sample of what was out there. So even the Denisovans, uh, the interesting thing is that the Denisovans we know about from Siberia did not provide the same population that, that interbred with the ancestors of the people in, for example, New Guinea and Australia. The Denisovans that were in island Southeast Asia that interbred with the ancestors of Australian Aborigines and New Guineans, they were a different branch of Denisovans that had split probably several hundred thousand years from them. So even the Denisovan lineage, when we get more fossils, is probably going to show a lot of diversity, probably more than, than modern humans do, probably more than Neanderthals do. So that's still to be discovered. And I haven't had a chance to talk about something strange from Africa called Homo naledi. Now, this is a species that's recently been discovered from uh, Rising Star Cave near Johannesburg in South Africa. And this is a species which is really quite primitive, in many ways uh, as primitive as Homo erectus or even something like Homo habilis, a very early human. And yet that creature was still around in South Africa about 300,000 years ago. And that's really astonishing. So we can account for the hobbit's survival on Flores because of the isolation of Flores. Somehow it got there early on, maybe more than a million years ago, and then evolved in splendid isolation for, for maybe a million years uh, with nothing to kind of get in its way and threaten it with extinction. But in South Africa, where we think that modern humans had been developing in Africa for several hundred thousand years, there was a, another evolved species, Homo heidelbergensis, in parts of Africa. How did Homo naledi, with, again, a, a, an ape-sized brain and quite a primitive skeleton, how did that survive in southern Africa at least until 300,000 years ago, and it may well have gone on after that. So that's a big mystery. Uh, how could that have survived there? And, and what's its evolutionary history? Where did it come from? We don't know anything about its ancestry. So that's a huge mystery as well. I think that's a reflection, as I've said, that we only have evidence from maybe 10% of the African continent at the moment in terms of fossils of, for human evolution. So the whole ancestry of Homo naledi is something that has yet to be discovered, and I don't think that will be the only big surprise to come out of Africa. There may well be yet other species lurking in other parts of Africa waiting to be discovered. Well, this may be a silly question, but if I was, a, you know, if I was, if I came from the future, you know, thousands of years and I had a, a nice, perfectly preserved skeleton, you know, from someone in China today, someone in the U.S., someone from Chile, someone from Australia, and I compared them not knowing anything about this time period, what would I think that 
maybe it was wrong versus what we know now. Like how different would I think those specimens I found look or would they look pretty much exactly the same? Yeah, well, I think obviously modern humans show diversity. We, we come in different sizes and shapes and colors. And, 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 you know, we can we know that there are some populations that are much smaller bodied than others. So there is diversity. So anyone studying us in the future uh, has got to make an assessment of how much variation there will be within a species. And that's what we have to do when we look at the fossils, of course. But one thing all these modern humans show is a globular brain case. So that's one of the distinctive features for modern humans. So all of these earlier humans I've talked about have got a long and low brain case. So the brain is longer and lower. Uh, the top of the head is more flattened. They've usually got this great big brow ridge at the front. Now we're different. We, we stand away from all of them in having a, a much more globular brain case. If you look at it from the side, it's, it's evenly curved. And we have only tiny brow ridges, or in some cases, no brow ridges at all. So we really stand out. And this observer in the future would notice that all of these modern human populations had that shared feature of a globular brain case and small brow ridges and a chin on the lower jaw. And if they looked at our rib cage and our pelvis, they again would see similarities which distinguished us, all of us, from those earlier species, which had bigger rib cages, which had bigger lungs in them, and a pelvis that was much wider and more flared. So modern humans vary, but I would say it's variation on a, on a pattern which is shared within the last, let's say, 250,000 years. So we have developed variation, but that variation is still within a single species. I think an observer in the future, particularly if they also had the other fossils to look at, would see that we were set apart and we were justifiably a single species Homo sapiens. The problem comes, of course, as you trace these lineages back in time. So, of course, as we head back towards the common ancestor with Neanderthals and Denisovans, a common ancestor that may have lived maybe 600,000 years ago. As we go back in time, we will lose the features of the end of the lineage. The most derived features of modern humans would start to disappear as you go back in time. And equally, the most derived features of Neanderthals would start to disappear until we get to a common ancestor, of course, maybe 600,000 years ago, that would not look like a, a modern human. It would not look like a, a, a recent Neanderthal. It would be distinct. And modern human features on our lineage in Africa evolved along that time period over several hundred thousand years. So a Homo sapiens fossil from three or four hundred thousand years ago will not have all the features of Homo sapiens. So that's when it gets difficult to trace these lineages back in time because, of course, they change. They become less like their modern counterparts and more like the common ancestor. Well, is there a way to map out who came first, you know, who bred with who, etc.? You know, it sounds like there's big holes in our history. From what I know, like 10,000 BC was the first human settlements. I don't know if they found skeletons, but then there's this huge hole until about 40, 50,000 years ago where you find some of these these fossils. And then, I mean, is that what it looks like? Like, what does the fossil record look like to you in terms of what we have and don't have? Well, in some areas, we've got a reasonable record. So in Europe, there's a pretty good record for that time period. And also genetically, we have DNA now representing most of that time period from 40,000 years down to the present. So then oh, wow. we can talk about, you know, a pretty good record, not complete. But yes, when we look at a place like Africa, yes, in some regions. So in East Africa, there's some record. In Southern Africa, there's some record. But you're right, there are 
there are patches in the record with missing data. In China, we're starting to fill in some of those gaps in the last 40,000 years. Uh, in Australia, we have got, again, parts of that story for the last 40,000 years, but that's where we need more work, of course, and the genetic data can help flesh out those stories. So the genetic data tells us about interbreeding events. So as I've mentioned, that New Guineans, for example, have evidence of an interbreeding phase with Neanderthals that happened probably around 55,000 years ago, and then they have an interbreeding phase with Denisovans that happened maybe 45,000 years ago. So you can map that in their DNA, even though we don't have, you know, the direct evidence of that, it does show in their DNA. And our interbreeding in Europe with, with the Neanderthals, again, can be mapped, most of it, to about 55,000 years ago. So there were these phases of interbreeding. And, and what's interesting is because some people say, well, you know, if we're interbreeding with Neanderthals and Denisovans, they can't be different species. And that's where we get these complex issues about what is a species. And I think someone counted there were at least 35 ways to, to define a species. So the biological species concept, which is the one I learned at school, says that um, species are reproductively isolated from each other. They don't interbreed with each other. Now, that concept is under challenge from the genetic data, because the more genetic data we get, of closely related species, the more we see that they do do a bit of interbreeding with each other. And this applies to groups of dogs, such as uh, jackals and wolves, and, and of course, the domestic dog. Uh, it applies to horse species. It applies to baboons uh, across Africa. Um, they look like good species, these baboons. They, they have different appearance, different behavior, and different environments. And yet, when you look at their DNA, where they overlap, they do a bit of interbreeding with each other. And so this seems to be quite common. In bird species, it may be that 20% of closely related bird species interbreed with each other. And it looks like this is the way of species kind of topping up their diversity. By interbreeding with a closely related species, you may acquire some lost diversity on your evolutionary pathway. And also you may acquire some useful adaptations from that other species. So when we interbred with the Neanderthals, when we came out of Africa, we interbred with the Neanderthals and they had their own immune adaptations to local pathogens outside of Africa, local diseases. Coming out of Africa, our ancestors didn't have any of those adaptations to the local diseases. And so by interbreeding with the Neanderthals, the result was that, that we got a quick fix to our immune systems and acquired some of their immune defenses against disease, which of course was advantageous. So that was the, the good side of the interbreeding. When we look at the genomes of modern humans, there are places where there's accentuated bits of Neanderthal DNA, for example, in the immune systems, but there's also deserts where all the Neanderthal DNA has been selected away. And in those places, clearly it was disadvantageous to have bits of Neanderthal DNA in certain parts of the genome, and those were lost quite quickly after the interbreeding period. So when we look at modern fossils at 40,000 years ago in Europe, some of them have maybe five or 6% Neanderthal DNA from recent interbreeding, but very quickly, the interbreeding level gets down. As you look at the generations, it goes down very quickly to around 2%, which is the level that we find across most of the world today of Neanderthal DNA. Are there any, uh, is there, again, is, you said there's Denisovan DNA in like Southeast Asia. So what percentage of the population has it? And is it the same level as Neanderthals? 
Yeah, so there's a much lower level of Denisovan DNA in most of East Asia. So if you look at East Asians, they have a very low percentage of Denisovan DNA, much less than 1%, um, but there are bits of it which seem to have proved useful. So, for example, in Tibet, it's been shown that uh, a gene there which gives the ability to live at high altitude in low oxygen conditions that actually seems to have come from Denisovans. So some of these Tibetan populations have a gene that's been specially selected from that interbreeding with Denisovans and it's been accentuated and it helps populations live at high altitude. So that's an example of an advantage, but most of the Denisovan DNA has disappeared from those East Asian populations. There's a bit of it in Native Americans who of course originated in East Asia. And when we move down to Southeast Asia and Australasia, we see higher percentages, up to three or 4% of Denisovan DNA there. So there's still a lot of work to do on it there. We, we think that some of the advantages of the Denisovan DNA may again be related to adaptations to local diseases, but a lot of that research is still ongoing and we don't really know the details of what that Denisovan DNA in many cases is doing in modern humans, but I'm sure some of it will be advantageous and that's why it's still there. Yeah. What do you think or how much of a picture do we have of our common ancestor and, you know, what features would it have? When did it live? You know, what's known about it? So the common ancestor of us and Neanderthals and Denisovans, you're thinking of there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I used to think this species Homo heidelbergensis was the common ancestor. So that species is around in, in Europe and Asia and Africa about 500,000 years ago. So for more than 30 years, I, I argued that it was very likely the common ancestor. And, you know, in some ways it, it fits the bill because it's got a, a smaller brain than, than modern humans and Neanderthals. It's more primitive in, in terms of uh, the size of the teeth and, and the thickness of the skull and so on. But the more I've studied Heidelbergensis, and this is my own work and, and with colleagues, it seems that Heidelbergensis actually is derived in some ways, and also it may be too young to be the common ancestor. So recent data has been pushing back the date of that common ancestor to probably 600,000 years ago. Some people push it even further back. And Heidelbergensis seems to actually be largely younger than that age. So I was recently involved in some work dating a Heidelbergensis skull from, from Zambia from Broken Hill, one that we've got in the Natural History Museum collections. And most people would have guessed that fossil was about 500,000 years old. But when we dated it, it turned out to be only 300,000 years old. So rather than being a candidate to be a modern human ancestor, it's, it's probably only half the age of what we think the common ancestor's dating was. So certainly some Heidelbergensis are too late to be the common ancestor of us and Neanderthals. And morphologically in the face, I think we're taking a different view of the evolution of the face now. So I used to take the view that that Heidelbergensis face was a sort of halfway house between our very flat middle to, to the face with hollow cheekbones and the Neanderthals with their big noses and inflated cheekbones and the whole middle of the face pulled forwards. For me, Heidelbergensis seemed to sit between those two and it could go then in either direction to a modern human face by reducing its size and to a Neanderthal face by making it more puffy and bigger nosed. But we now take a different view that what we call the modern human face seems likely to be actually the primitive face. So it looks like the common ancestor actually had a face much more like ours and it's the Neanderthals and Heidelbergensis that have moved away 
from that smaller, more delicate face, if you like, because we've got a fossil from Spain from uh, of Homo antecessor, uh, about 850,000 years old. And the interesting thing with antecessor is that the, f- the fossils of the face suggest it had rather a modern-looking face more than 800,000 years ago. And there are fossils in China that are 600,000 years ago or so, about that age, they also seem to have a modern-looking face. So it looks like, you know, we kept that face from the common ancestor and the Neanderthals and Heidelbergensis moved away from it. So that's a different way of looking at it. So I would say the common ancestor had a face that looked much more like ours, but it would have had a big brow ridge, it would have had a smaller brain, a thicker skull, probably a more robust skeleton than, than either we or the Neanderthals have. Very good. Chris, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and see pictures and everything? Where can they go? Yeah, well, they can find me on Twitter. So I'm I'm at uh, Chris Stringer 65. So I'm active there and, uh, you know, I tweet about human evolution in general. And also if I've got any papers or giving talks, they're on my, my Twitter feed. I've recently written a book uh, with a colleague at the museum called Louise Humphrey, and it's called uh, uh, Our Human Story. So that's certainly worth a look. And yes, I, I publish widely and I'm on things like your podcast. So people are going to find me if they Google me. Excellent. Yeah, Chris, thanks for coming. It's a really interesting subject. And uh, you know, I appreciate pleasure. you being here. Yeah, thanks very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.